And for all of you who are opting to stay and not go to Children's Church, I invite you to open back up your text this morning. We're going back, uh, open back up Jonah chapter 3. And the reason why I want you to open this back up, I really appreciate uh, Becky McNatt reading for us this morning, but I, I need you to pay attention to how dramatic this book is getting. Okay, so we're, we're now in our third week uh, series on lessons from Jonah, and, and as we've been kind of marching through this book, we are gleaning the, the, the lesson that the parable of Jonah has for us. So a little context for everybody and a refresher for myself. First and foremost, most scholars agree that the book of Jonah isn't necessarily a historical book. We do know that there was a person named Jonah, or at least we understand. He's mentioned in the book of 2 Kings, outside of his own book. We know he was the son of Amittai and all of this stuff. But uh, the actual events depicted in the book of Jonah may not have been literal events that happened. Rather, most scholars believe that Jonah is a parable, like one of those stories which Jesus tells whenever he's trying to make a point. Most people think, believe that Jonah is a book trying to make a point. And the reason why is because almost entirely of this chapter right here, Jonah chapter 3. So leading up to Jonah chapter 3, here is, here is the backstory. Jonah, son of Amittai, receives a call from God, go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, you know, that country that is currently occupying your own country and casting you all out into exile and destroying everything you love and hold dear. Yeah, go to that city and tell them this message that I'm going to give to you. And Jonah says, that sounds like a really bad idea. I'm not going to do that. And so Jonah turns the other direction, runs toward Tarshish. We heard the name Tarshish you know, repeatedly uh, up to this point. Turns and runs the opposite direction of Nineveh because one, Jonah doesn't want to be killed. Any person from an occupied nation walking up to the capital of the occupying nation is going to be brutally dealt with. Jonah knows that and doesn't want that. Two, Jonah hates Nineveh. They stand for everything that he abhors in the world. He doesn't want to have anything to do with them. And three, he knows that if he delivers this message, that they might turn from their ways and God might change God's mind and, they, and the people of Nineveh might be saved and Jonah doesn't want Nineveh to be saved. So he turns and runs the other direction, finds himself in a boat that's taking him to Tarshish. A storm comes up as they're out on the boat and everybody on it freaks out because apparently storms are an uncommon thing on the water and, and they start asking, why has this storm come up? And Jonah says, well, that's, it's, it's my fault. I'm running from God. And they say, well, what do we do? And he says, just, just throw me overboard. It'll be fine. And, and this, is, we learned last week, is a really bold statement on Jonah's part because in ancient Near Eastern civilization, the sea was understood as the place in which all bad things come from. Sheol is the term used in the Hebrew text. This, this, this underworld, the place of demons and all darkness originates from here. And so for Jonah to willingly be thrown into the, into the sea, volunteering his tribute, his own life, is a pretty bold move on his part. But gracious as God is, God swoops in with a very large fish, not a whale, and swallows Jonah. And Jonah then resides in the belly of this great large fish for, for three days and three nights. Until this point, whenever Jonah's finally, you know, I guess deals with his trauma and his pride and comes to this point where he prays to God and recognizes this culmination moment where he says, deliverance belongs to the Lord. 
God's satisfied with Jonah's prayer, and so God commands the fish to expel Jonah, and so Jonah finds himself, you know, washed up on the shore, covered in seaweed and fish sick, I imagine, and it was probably a very disgusting scenario for him. And once again, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. And Jonah, you know, having learned his lesson, says, all right, I'm on my way. And this is where our narrative picks up this morning. So Jonah sets out to Nineveh. And in case you didn't know this already, because it hasn't apparently been mentioned five times, Nineveh, verse 3, Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Nineveh's big. It's probably the largest city uh, in, in known civilization at the time. It's a very large city. And so Jonah goes to Nineveh, and I guess by the time he gets to Nineveh, his fire kind of burns out. And he's thinking, ah, kind of fizzling out here, not really feeling this whole uh, call from God thing anymore. And so Jonah doesn't even get halfway into the city, only walks, and you could very easily skip over this, but it says he only walks a day's walk in, one day, for a city that takes three days to get across. He only goes a third of the way in, which, you know, already he's kind of putting forth a lax effort, and we're not sure if he takes God's message in and is like shouting it the whole way he's walking into the city, or if he's like whispered it to one random person uh, who's like baking bread on the corner, or you know, how, the, how he said his message. But he tells the people after one day's walk in, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. And then he walks back out. 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In the Hebrew, that's only five words. In the Hebrew text, he only speaks five words, and apparently not with much gusto. Only five words, and the words don't even give a whole lot of context to what he's talking about. All it gives is a time frame, 40 days more, and what's going to happen. Nineveh will be overthrown. It doesn't say why, or how, or by whom. Any of these you know, important details that I feel like great cities would you know, be looking for, Five words, turns and walks back out, and guess what? Jonah only doing the bare minimum in order for him to be able to say, okay, God, I did what you told me to, now I'm out of here, going back to Tarshish. It works. Five words, one day's journey in, and it works. And it's, it's astounding what happens based on his five words to a massive city who has no connection with him. Okay, we get this dramatic response. I mean, more dramatic than the rest of the book leading up to here and all of Jonah's, uh, you know, oddities. We really start to see drama taking place. I mean, Lifetime and Hallmark couldn't have put together a better story. So first, it is astounding, at least to me, it's astounding, that the very brief message which Jonah t gives, by the way, Jonah's a foreigner in a land that's currently occupying his own, that this very brief message that he only speaks not even all the way into the city, it reaches the king. It reaches the king of, of, of all things. Like, I, I can imagine, I mean, try it. Try as you might, say anything you would like about, uh, about the United States of America, whatever, and just, just speak it in, you know, five words. 
and let me know if that message ever gets to the President of the United States. It doesn't happen, right? Because unless, unless there are very dramatic uh, events that are surrounding that, those words, it just doesn't happen. You, especially for a king. A king's going, you know, if a king even heard this message, it would sound like nonsense. But how does a message like this even reach the king? And that brings us to the second point that I find astounding. The king takes it seriously. The king hears these five words from a strange person on the side of the road. Probably, I mean, I can't imagine he even heard it firsthand or secondhand. This had to have been through the grapevine to go through a lot of advisors to get to the king at this point. And he hears this and he says, oh no, this sounds serious. I'm not going to lie. There are very few occasions where I would take a message like this seriously. And so third, it's astounding to me that the king takes it so seriously. His decree is this. No human being or animal shall eat or drink anything, and that every living thing shall be covered in sackcloth and shall cry mightily to God. That's absurd. It is absolutely absurd for, for a decree to go out from the king for, I mean, nearly any reason, but for him to declare to not only his own courts, but to all of the people, don't eat or drink anything anymore until I say so, and tear off your clothes and wear sackcloth and said, and sit in ashes and cry out to this God that you've never heard of because Lord help us, destruction's coming, apparently, according to the strange man who walked a, a day's walk into our city. Do you see the drama that's happening here? It's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. It's not something that should happen in an average society, especially not in a superpower like Assyria, where Nineveh is the capital. It, it should not be taking place. But as we read it, you know, we're, here we are sitting, you know, roughly 3,000 years after this time, and we're sitting here thinking like, well, of course, you know, what else would people and animals do if they heard that God is going to destroy them? Like, it's only natural that you would stop eating and drinking and tell your animals to do, do the same. It's only natural that you would tear off your clothes and put on sackcloth and do the same for your animals, too, because that makes sense. It's only natural that you would start crying out to a, a, an entity that you had never heard of before because maybe that entity would save you and your animals. I don't know why the animals got dragged into this. But this is the situation that Jonah has caused in all of his drama and all of his, you know, laziness. But probably the most dramatic part to me is that the people actually change their ways. They hear this message from Jonah and, and this decree from the king, you know, not everybody heard what Jonah was saying, maybe a third of the city, and they hear it and they completely change their ways. And this is dramatic to me because Nineveh and Assyria came to, came to power through very brutal means. A simple change of our ways, calling ourselves the good guys all of a sudden, you know, I, I can't see that happening to an entire massive city just because of five simple words from a random stranger. And then God spares them. God lets them keep on going. God sees Change your ways, good enough, carry on. And I wonder, can we be okay with a God who saves the bad guys? With a God who spares the bad guys? Because I, we'll find out next week, Jonah was not okay with it. 
Jonah wanted to see Nineveh burn. Like fire, real fire consuming in this large city. And he doesn't get it. We like it when the bad guys get what's coming to them, don't we? I, um, I have the pleasure, my, uh, my dad and stepmom are here this morning, I'm sitting up front here. My dad uh, raised me on James Bond films. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was quite the joy. Um, we, we had the full VHS collection and went through them all. Uh, and, and then, you know, certain holidays, they would come on a channel on TV and we'd watch James Bond. And, and in the James Bond movie, you know, there's the protagonist, Bond, 007, and, uh, and he's going through his uh, routine and all of a sudden encounters the antagonist, a bad guy, usually has something to do with gold something, I don't know what that was about, and, and, and this bad guy is, is causing all sorts of chaos uh, that you know, James is trying to prevent and that the world doesn't like, and then we get to that point where the bad guy gets what's coming to him, and you're like, yeah, that's how it's done, come on, Bond. And you're really excited about it and hyped up because we know that the bad guys don't win. We know that the good guys win and the bad guys get what's coming to them. Just desserts, you know what I'm saying? And, and this is just how we've, we've established our, our society, that there's good guys and bad guys. And the good guys are supposed to win and the bad guys aren't. The bad guys are supposed to suffer because they have caused suffering. This is justice, right? And we all know what justice feels like, especially if you were watching games yesterday. Football season has started. Praise God, football season has started. If you're an Alabama fan, we already know what happened. You, you're going to win. It's fine. It's especially against Duke. God, at least they have basketball. But if you're an Auburn fan, like this guy, woo, War Eagle, then you know Auburn goes up against Pac-12's, one of Pac-12's number one teams, and if you were watching the game yesterday, you were pretty nervous, sitting on the edge of your seat, watching all the way up till the last nine seconds as we were losing. And you're praying, God, if you're real, let Auburn win. And by some miracle, Auburn pulls it out in those last nine seconds, and you just... I'm getting saved all over again. Because you know that Oregon's the bad guys. You know they can't win. Auburn's the good guys, unless we have people from Oregon here, in which case I apologize. But Auburn's the good guys. Auburn has to win. Alabama's going to win, that's fine. But Auburn has to win. They're the good guys, and we can't let the bad guys you know, come up in here and, 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 and try to throw things all out of proportion. And so we have this, this learned sense that we develop an us and them mentality. And us, we are the good guys. Anybody who's on our side is the good guys, right? Because we can connect with them. We know and understand them. We can say they're the good guys. Meanwhile, them, they are the bad guys because they're different from us. They like Oregon. They wear green. Sorry for those of you who are wearing green this morning. They're the bad guys, and, and, and they have to be the ones who get justice. We can't let them do that to our team and get away with it. And so we have this learned sense that in this us and them mentality, that the good guys have to win and the bad guys have to lose. And this is what Jonah is faced with. He's going into bad guy territory, the baddest of the bad. 
And he knows they're supposed to lose. He knows they have to get what's coming to them. But here's the problem. God's justice never looks like revenge. God's justice never looks like justice as we think of it. God's justice begins with compassion. And so God spares the bad guys. And, why this, and this is a huge moment in, Bibli- in, in the entire Bible, okay? So Jonah is pretty late on in, uh, in the Bible. So you've got several other people, prophets, experiences going on. Um, let's see here. Yeah, about that much of the Bible right there is all Israel-focused. It's all focused on Israel, on the people of Israel and their, their comings and goings and dealings with God and, and, and all of the weird stuff that happens with them. And, and it's always understood that God is on the side of Israel and not on the side of the bad guys, which is anybody else who you know, tries to threaten their independence and their promised land and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But for the first time in biblical history, Israel isn't the focus. Nineveh is. The enemies of Israel is the focus. The enemies of Israel are suddenly the ones that God is reaching out to, and Israel has never heard about this. Because in ancient Near Eastern society, your God was on your side, and the other side had their gods. But your God was on your side. And now all of a sudden, Israel's God is reaching out beyond Israel. God is no longer just focused on Israel. Or perhaps God was never focused on just Israel, but Israel is just now figuring that out. That their God is about more than just them. And so last week we talked about this this expression that Jonah pulls out, saying, deliverance belongs to the Lord. And what that notion means is that it's it's not just that God gets to choose whom God wants to save. Rather, it's that God chooses to save even the bad guys. And so I want us to uh, turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John. And uh, you may see where I'm going with this. John chapter 3, we'll start with verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, verse 17, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We often forget verse 17. Jesus didn't come to condemn. God is not in the condemnation business. God's heart isn't about condemnation. God's heart is about compassion. For God so loved the world. Yeah, it wasn't just Israel. It wasn't for God so loved Israel, or for God so loved the Jews, or for God so loved this, uh, this group of people here, that for God so loved the, uh, the church at Spring Hill Avenue United Methodist Church, or that God so loved America. It's God so loved the world. And every single person in it, the bad guys included, are loved. And that doesn't feel comfortable. That sits a little uneasy with us. But even the bad guys, God is calling out with fierce love and grace. And so the love of God is not just confined to those people that we think deserve it. God's love is for 
all people. It doesn't just stop where we think it should stop. It doesn't just stop at the point where we draw the line between good guys and bad guys because I believe Oregon has some nice people over there. God, God's love is for all people. And the only thing is, we get in the way of that sometimes. Whenever we draw our divisions, whenever we say there's us and them, whenever we say we're the good guys and they're the bad guys, whenever we say that, that those people deserve punishment while we deserve glory, we draw these divisions in God's love and God is still trying to break through our walls and barriers and say, no, I still love this person. I still love these people. And guess what? You're one of them. You're one of these people who are so undignifiably loved. Is that a word? I think I just made that up. Sorry. You are a people who are so loved. And so the question that I want to leave us with today, because I like to leave us with a question to think about this, as we're going through our week, consider, can we be a people who model the love of God for all people, even the bad guys? Can we do that? Because that's hard. We know who the bad guys are. We've already decided in our minds. But can we start breaking down those barriers and divisions we draw and, and declare to the world the love of God, which is for the world? Can we be a people who model the love of God for all people, even the bad guys? This morning, we have the, the opportunity to come together to celebrate Holy Communion. And this is an open table. All people are welcomed. We do not reject anybody from the table of God because God does not reject anybody from the table. And so whenever we enter into our time of communion in a moment, remember, God's love is for you and just as much for you as for the person next to you and just as much for them as the person on the other side of the world whom we've never met, and just as much for them as for the people of Nineveh. God's grace covers all. So let us pray together this morning. God, as often as we draw our lines, as often as we try to decide who's good and who's bad, or who's in and who's out, Remind us that your love is bigger than we are, bigger than how our minds can comprehend and bigger than the divisions we try to draw and welcome us in. We cry out this morning for a world in desperate need of your grace. We pray this morning for our brothers and sisters who are in the path of Hurricane Dorian as it has increased to a, to a Category 5. We pray especially for those living in the Bahamas and along the East Coast that there might be protection, that there might be safety and security, and that if landfall is made, that we might, that our government might actually recognize a hurricane has made landfall this time and that there are people in need of help as we continue to remember our brothers and sisters who are still suffering in the aftermath of Hurricane Michael just a year ago. We lift up to you also our brothers and sisters in Odessa, Texas, as a mass shooting took place and 
Five people lost their lives. We pray for them and for their families and loved ones, for those who are injured. And God, as often as we think, surely this will never happen at home, we pray also for our brothers and sisters who are at the Mobile Stadium on Friday night and experience their own mass shooting. And as multiple teenagers took bullets because of senseless violence, we cry out to you, O God, desperate for your love to break through. We pray for these people, for our brothers and sisters across the globe who are in need of your comfort. And we lift them up to you as we lift up to you also those prayers which are on our hearts but unspoken. We pray these things in your perfect and holy name. Amen.